crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello and welcome to Watch Jerusalem. I'm Brent Nuktagal. Today we're going to go through an article that you've probably read, or at least a story that you've seen over the past week relating to archaeology. It's probably one of the biggest finds, let's say, in the past year in terms of how it was covered. And this is the discovery of a temple that was found on the outskirts of Jerusalem on the road to Tel Aviv, about seven kilometers away from Israel's or Jerusalem city of David. And where the temple was, we have another temple being discovered. And this was reported originally in Biblical Archaeology Review uh, by some of the archaeologists there that have been excavating this, or at least have returned to this site for more uh, excavation work after this place was already discovered. They kind of have a new take on it. Uh, this main article that was written by Shua Kisilevitz and Oded Lifshitz, uh, it's entitled Another Temple in Judah, and it was in the latest edition of Biblical Archaeology Review. And then this article came out, and then there was a flurry or news release from Tel Aviv University where Oded Lifshitz works. And then uh, we have Times of Israel, Haaretz, uh, Jerusalem Post, all writing articles on this. We're going to have a feature article on this as well, I believe, in our next print edition of the, of the Watch Jerusalem magazine, because it is necessary to push back on some of what is being reported about this uh, supposed temple. Uh, on the outskirts of Jerusalem, because if you've read any of it, or if you looked at stories uh, of this of this discovery, they mainly talk about how it goes against what we would expect to find from the biblical text. And so what I'm going to do today is go through the biblical archaeology review piece, which is the original, which is being written by the, the excavators themselves, and then go through some of the reporting on it, uh, Times of Israel, uh, Haaretz and, and Jerusalem Post each have a different take on it. Just some of the titles here of these articles. Another Temple in Judah is the original Biblical Archaeology Review piece. Revealed in First Temple Era, another massive temple was in use near Jerusalem. That is from Times of Israel. Haaretz writes this, Ancient place of worship found near Jerusalem challenges assumptions about First Temple. And then finally, Jerusalem Post, their article, Biblical Israelites Maintain Cult Practices in Temples Outside Jerusalem. And so you have a kind of a varying degree here of, of their reporting in their titles. I think the Jerusalem Post article actually is quite good. Uh, they, I think whoever wrote this, I don't have the author here, unfortunately, but um, they kind of stick to the script in terms of what the Bible actually says and what they've found there. And it starts off saying this, the Bible narrates that in the centuries after ancient Israelites entered the land of Israel, many, if not all, of the people turned their back on the God of their fathers for long periods of time, going back to worshiping idols, creating altars, and adopting pagan practices. This is great. They're starting off with what the Bible actually says, and that says that most of the time people turned their back on God and they worshiped idols. That is what the Bible says. Uh, and so that's what we expect to find in archaeological sites throughout Israel, close to Jerusalem, outside of Jerusalem, and what have you. We expect to find idols. We expect to find other places of worship. But what we have in numerous reports, though, of this discovery is what they're, what's implied and what's even stated is that what they've discovered there goes against what the Bible says. And so this is really critical if you want to kind of clear away uh, the distraction, the noise about archaeological discoveries. What you need to do is read these pieces in a very discerning, discerning way. And you don't rely on their interpretation of what the Bi they think the Bible says. It's good for you to go and read it. Read yourself what the Bible says. Go through the historical narrative inside the Bible. And then read what they've actually found. Read what they've excavated. And then try and separate as much as possible their assumptions or, or uh, their conclusions of what they've, they've found 
from the actual hard data as well. And so all these excavations, whether they're done by Tel Aviv University, Hebrew University, or uh, other archaeologists, um, they're excavated according to the same standards as far as the actual digging goes. And the actual reporting of what they found should be pretty straightforward. Some do a better job in a more timely manner than others of reporting what's found. And so that hard data should not change. It's the interpretation of that data is how you get the, the varying uh, well, the varying tone of reporting uh, that we're going to even see today in some of these articles. But obviously those that, that have excavated this, they have the right to give the first take uh, at what is uh, at their determination of what they've discovered. And, and most of the time, they are the ones, since they're closest to the artifacts they are, they're excavating, they have the best idea of what is there in the ground and what theories would work or wouldn't work because they have access to more data than those of us, including myself. And so uh, I'm as I'm going through this, I'm looking, trying to look at the facts, what they found, the dating of what they found, and then trying to put it against the, the biblical narrative, what it says in the Bible of those same dates. And a little spoiler alert, I believe what they've found here fits perfectly in, with what the biblical, biblical source states, with what the Bible states in Kings and Chronicles about the history of the people of Judah particularly. Uh, we, do, we do find many, many parallels here um, with what they have discovered. Let's just go straight off now to this article, Another Temple in Judah. This is from Biblical Archaeology Review. I'll leave a link to it. I think this is behind a paywall, though, uh, so I don't know if you'll be able to read all of this. But I'll, I'll just show you the tone of the, the article itself. Now, if you know Oded Lifshitz, he works at Tel Aviv University, and he is a biblical minimalist, uh, so we, we know he's coming from that perspective. He doesn't believe that the Bible is accurate uh, in terms of the history that it describes, especially concerning David, Solomon, and the kingdom of the United Monarchy, uh, as it's called. This is what it's, how it starts off. In 2012, archaeologists from the Jerusalem district of the Israel Antiquities Authority made a jaw-dropping, jaw-dropping discovery that is still puzzling archaeologists and biblical scholars. They discovered a temple at Talmosa, Less than four miles northwest of Jerusalem, it apparently stood, operated, and welcomed worshippers throughout most of the Iron Age too, from its establishment around 900 BCE until its demise sometime towards the end of the Iron Age, early 6th century BCE. But what is a temple doing at Talmotza during this period when the Bible says the only temple in Judah was in Jerusalem? Okay, so this is what it's kind of the 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 let's say, the, the contention of the authors here that the Bible centralizes worship inside Jerusalem, and here we have somewhere really close to Jerusalem, a massive structure that they believe is a temple. Uh, it definitely, this, this area definitely has religious function, for sure. Cultic practices taking place there, I'm not saying that, but they definitely put it as a temple, and, and that it is a temple is, is up to their opinion. Again, they excavated it more than... Or they excavated I didn't, uh, so it very well could be a temple. But they're saying that they're in this piece here, as they cover, that it's surprising to find another place of worship such as this outside of Jerusalem. And they're saying that based on what the Bible says. So we are going to go through this now and look at what the Bible says, and we're going to look at what they found. First of all, we'll go with what they found. So there are some pictures of this, and I'll leave some links to probably the Times of Israel piece because it's got the best pictures and it shows you a rather large structure. The, the, it's got the large northern wall uh, of this building, and it's got a pretty large eastern wall as well. They say that it follows the, the pattern of these temples where you have a kind of a large narrow building. It has an entrance on the eastern side, just as Solomon's Temple would and other temples around in the, at this age. And they have one pillar uh, outside the front of the temple, and then they have an altar at the front uh, and a pit of um, cut up bones and and they also have a couple of idols that were smashed and underneath the plastered floor there at the front in the courtyard area and so this what they found definitely does have a religious function for sure and um, they've only found part of this building not all of it is discovered they haven't found a southern or a, we've got the northern wall they haven't found the southern wall they haven't found the end of the building towards the west either 
Um, but they, they make some assumptions that this is definitely a temple building, and it very much could be uh, a temple building. We don't know as, as yet whether it is for sure. But this is what they, this is what they say uh, regarding this building itself. I'll just read through their explanation. It says, Excavation under the temple's earliest floor revealed a cultic structure that predated the temple complex and is attributed to the 10th century BCE. Based on the supposition of the pottery found in the temple's foundation, we can date the construction of the temple to the early 9th or possibly late 10th century BCE. It is now evident that the site exhibits continuity, continuity sorry, in function, both administrative and cultic, from the early stages of the Iron II period. So, this is the fact. What they're saying is, underneath, based on the stuff we find underneath this structure, uh, we know that it was built sometime in the 10th century or late or early 9th century BCE. So, in terms of like dates attached to this, may perhaps sometime uh, 930, let's just put it there with a date like that. That's kind of late, started a late period, 930 through till 870. Let's say that. Maybe the 60-year window uh, of time in which this structure was built. The very first time. So, if we're going to attach biblical kings, and we put the biblical kings to the chronology of this structure, that would be sometime after Solomon's already dead. Uh, perhaps it's Rehoboam, perhaps it's Asa uh, after. So, one of the early kings after the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah have split. No more united monarchy, but we have this large structure going up. And they say from the very beginning that it had religious function. Okay, well, continuing on in this piece, and again, this is the piece from the excavators. So uh, this, is, this is from the horse's mouth, or as close as you can get to it. They say this, <clears throat> uh, as, you, as you read through, this is further on in the piece. The temple complex has an east-west orientation and consists of a courtyard and a large rectangular building. So courtyard at the front, all the way in the east, and if you go back towards the west from the courtyard or from this small altar that they have, you'll find the entrance to a building, uh, which they say is a temple. It has the uh, conventional uh, Inantis North Syrian-style temple plan, so it's saying it follows what the Bible says about uh, Solomon's temple as well, how it was constructed. Solomon's temple faced east, obviously. That's where the entrance was. The altar was in the front, so on and so forth. This plan consists of a long room, usually segmented in two spaces. A smaller holy of holies was located at the back, where the central object of worship, often a statue, was placed. This is talking about not... In uh, a statue obviously wasn't in Solomon's temple, uh, but just talking about the general idea of this style of building. While a larger forward chamber, or the holy place as we would call it, was connected to a front portico with two columns flanking the entrance. So that's the general style of temple <clears throat> that the Bible describes for Solomon, and is similar to what they have found elsewhere in a couple other locations here in the Levant. Continuing on in this article, although the southern part of the portico is not preserved... Due to later construction and erosion, we assume that the building was likely symmetrical, meaning that the portico consists of two column bases flanked by evenly spaced ante, or ends of the walls acting like pillars on either side of the entrance. So what they're saying is they only have the northern wall and they only have one pillar at the front. They assume that there was a southern wall and they assume that there was a southern pillar as well. Okay. Continuing on, it says this, Segments of two floors were found, a packed earth and plaster floor near the entrance in the eastern part of the building. So this is if you just entered through the doorway and you're going in, they've got a packed earth and plaster floor on the ground. It's not tiled or anything like that. It's just a plaster floor. And this is in, in the very eastern part of the building as you enter. So the holy place, let's call it that, if, this is, if it is a temple. And at a higher elevation, a fragmented stone pavement to the west. Five field stones, probably serving as sacred stones, had intentionally been placed on the plaster floor against the northern bench. The absence of an earlier floor under the stone pavement, so this is as you're traveling through this building, going westward from the entrance, you get a stone pavement, and it was higher. 
it's higher. And they're saying that they can't find anything under the stone pavement. So according to that, we have an ascension that's taking place inside where the floor is gradually getting higher and higher as it transitions to this uh, more of a pavement rather than the plaster as you're going towards what would be the Holy of Holies, according to them. Accordingly, they write, the higher floor in the West can be understood as an architecturally designed ascension within the building. As one progresses towards the Holy of Holies, one physically steps higher and higher. And then they say this, although no partition wall was found within the temple, the variation in the floor's material composition may offer a further physical distinction between the front chamber and the Holy of Holies. So they're saying they're assuming a couple of things. It doesn't have to be this way, um, but they're saying that they don't find any any two two uh, let's say two segments of of or two divisions inside this main temple building. They don't find a, a wall that separates or a partial wall that separates the Holy of Holies or the holy places. They would see it, but they do find two different uh, types of floor. Okay. So that's the building itself. Let's go out the front of the building towards the east then. As you exit this building, you're going to look towards uh, an altar that's in front. This is what it says. This article, the temple courtyard, was paved with a packed earth floor, only patches of which remain. Within the courtyard, a prominent stone altar, refuse pit, and other installations were discovered. Built of unhewn field stones, the altar stands at the center of the courtyard, directly in front of the temple's entrance. It measures roughly 4.5 feet by 4.5 feet. So you go straight out the door and right in front of you, uh, space a few meters away, you're going to have this square altar, 4.5 feet by 4.5 feet wide, uh, really a lot smaller than what the Bible describes Solomon's being. Solomon's altar was 20 cubits by 20 cubits, so maybe five, five times as big as this. Nevertheless, you do have an altar out the front. Definitely this is an altar. To the northeast, nearly adjacent the altar. So this, if you're looking at, if, if east is to the to the right in your field of view, then just above that, uh, you are going to have a six by four foot oval pit dug about three feet deep into packed earth floor, and it was filled with ash, earth pot, uh, filled with earth ash, pottery shards, a large amount of bones, mostly sheep and goat remains, some burnt, some with butchery marks. And this pit probably functioned as a disposal pit associated with the sacrifices performed on the altar. Again, this all makes sense. These are the facts. Again, the archaeologist there will make his determination of what everything means at the end. We're just trying to cover what the facts are right now so that we can make our own determination of whether their conclusions are uh, stack up to what the Bible says should be taking place here at this period and whether it does. Uh, kind of revolutionize our thinking in terms of the religion of, of, of Judah, or whether it falls right in line with what the Bible says. So they found an altar, and they found a refuse pit with a large amount of bones, some of them cut, and they're all kind of kosher animals. And so it does look like these were animals involved in this religious service of this location. About three feet north of the refuse pit was a particular was a rectangular stone, so we're going uh, up again in your field of view. Uh, there was a rectangular stone installation or podium measuring about three by two feet and one foot high. So a podium, uh, three by two feet, and this is just north of where this refuse, refuse pit was. And again, I'll show you a picture of this so you can see it and go along um, show and uh, look at what we're talking about as I'm going through this. This assemblage, uh, sorry, it says this, an assemblage of cult artifacts and pottery sherds was found scattered along a narrow strip of the courtyard floor between the disposal pit and the podium. This assemblage includes four figurines, uh, two anthrop anthropomorphic, so two kind of looking like humans, and two zoomorphic, two looking kind of looking like animals. Uh, fragments of chalices, one with traces of burning, stands, including fragments of large decorated cult stand, and pendants, one shaped like a pomegranate. These artifacts had been intentionally broken, deposited, and covered with a thick layer of earth and pieces of plaster. 
The podium appears to have served in the cultic rituals that took place in the courtyard, likely as an offering table on which the figurines, or more plausibly, additional cult artifacts had been originally placed. Okay, so you've got all this really interesting religious and uh, religious or cultic paraphernalia, you could call it, uh, involved here outside this building. You've got the altar, you've got the, the, the pit where stuff would have been thrown. Um, you have a bunch of idols that have been found there, and you also have a podium which perhaps these idols stood, some of these idols stood. And what you also have, though, are these figurines or idols being intentionally broken and buried and a plaster floor going right over the top of them? So these are the facts again. Then it says this, uh, Since it was continually in use, this temple space had the greatest variety of archaeological features. Uh, and then it says this, In all, we noted four phases from the Iron Age II in the temple courtyard. The first of which is the best preserved and comprised the cultic assemblage, offering table, pit, and altar. These were eventually covered with fills and were sealed under a plaster floor, making or marking the second floor of the temple courtyard. The disposition does not signify a break in the religious traditions, but rather a religious ritual during which cultic paraphernalia was decommissioned to make room for new items. So what you see see there is the difference between what they found and then their, uh, their theory about what they found as well. So they did find four phases. Four phases during this Iron two. two. So this we're talking about, as they said, somewhere around the time of Rehoboam at Asa. This place is being built. This courtyard's in use. Religious stuff's going on. And then sometime through around Josiah's reign, perhaps after, perhaps a bit before, it's continuing in this use. And they've got four phases of, of remodeling, or, or let's just say uh, using this area time and time again with slight additions, maybe a different floor or something like that, within this space of, what would that be, a couple hundred years or 250 years. So these four phases are interesting. Um, perhaps we can match up some biblical events to these four phases here at this location as well. So these are all the facts I'm giving you at the start. <clears throat> okay, let's talk about then what they talk about regarding the uh, understanding of what was taking place here and how they compare it to the Bible. Further on in this article, it says this. We must ask the big question, who was this agricultural community that established the site and built the temple at Telmoza? So this is what we've found. What's it doing there? Do we know who built it? And so now we're getting into what they would say is their theories about or their hypotheses about this location. And here is where we'll start to pick apart, as, we, as I would see it, uh, some of their understanding of what the Bible actually says, or what's even been found archaeologically as well. It's, it writes this, It is commonly accepted that the site was part of Judah's economic and administrative system during the time of Iron II BC period, meaning it would have been officially sanctioned by the kingdom of Judah. So it's saying that during this later period, let's say 800s or maybe 700s through uh, the 600s, this, this place was definitely part of Judah, according to them. Definitely ruled from a king in Jerusalem, and they would have held uh, control over this territory. And the very fact of that, and, and, and because we know that this uh, site had religious function during that period, they're saying that this must have been sanctioned from Jerusalem. This was allowed from Jerusalem. The, in the kingdom of Judah... They, were, they knew about the religious function of this site, this idol worship at this site, and they allowed it to happen. That's what they say during this, the, let's say, after it was originally constructed. And that does fit well within the Bible, as, as we'll cover in a second. But, they write, attributing a monumental temple complex to a kingdom centered in Jerusalem in the late 10th and early 9th century BCE seems impossible, given the current state of our archaeological knowledge about Jerusalem. <laughs> so this is quite interesting. 
And uh, if you follow our work and if you follow what has been discovered, especially on the Ophel, I would say, uh, this is right just south of the Temple Mount here in Jerusalem, um, you would kind of laugh and chuckle at this. Or you would just say, wait a minute, is he aware of what, what has been discovered in the past, let's say, seven years in Jerusalem from the 10th and 9th centuries BCE? The massive buildings that make his little his temple at Mozart look tiny? Maybe he isn't. Maybe he isn't. But he's saying that it's impossible uh, because of what we know about Jerusalem and how it's small and nothing's there during the 10th and the 9th century. So what they're talking about is King Solomon's time or even King Rehoboam's time or even King Ace's time. Since they say that there's nothing there in Jerusalem and here we have a massive building being, being constructed five, six uh, kilometers away around that same time, it couldn't have been uh, allowed by Jerusalem, or, or let's put it this way, Jerusalem had no jurisdiction over this land because Jerusalem was a tiny little hill ruled by a chief and they had their own go- thing going on and that rule from Jerusalem couldn't stretch out five miles. <laughs> I've just got here uh, a book open. This is in front of me. This is uh, Ancient Jerusalem Revealed, Archaeological Discoveries, 1998 to 2018. It's uh, recently been published. It's got a lot of, of um, it's in English, which is great. And it's, it's summarizing the excavations of the past 20 years, a number of them inside Jerusalem. There's a, there's a couple articles written by Dr. Elot Mazar, and one of those articles talks about what's been discovered at the OFL. And I'm looking at these massive walls and massive complexes, gate, potentially a gatehouse, um, all from the 10th and 9th centuries, or 10th centuries, basically. And so he's saying that because nothing was in Jerusalem at the 10th century, we can't have Jerusalem having jurisdiction over this area. And so it couldn't have been, let's say, the, the Jews from Jerusalem that were building this temple. It must have been somebody else, is what they're saying. I'll read on. It says, instead, we find that the Tel Motza temple was the undertaking of a local group, initially representing several extended families or perhaps villages that banded together to pool their resources and maximize production and yield. As they grew and expanded, so did their site, which eventually grew to house a cult place constructed and established as a monumental temple. The erection of the temple is a hefty undertaking that necessitated administrative organization and exhibited a high level of craftsmanship and knowledge of Near Eastern conventions. The construction of the Tel Motza Temple should be viewed as a reflection of the complexity of the local community and as an indication of a level of civil, uh, sorry, civic administra- administrative formation by the early 9th century BCE in this region, perhaps even an autonomous Motza polity. Who exactly constructed the, the temple in the early 9th century BCE? And were these people associated with the rise of Jerusalem and the emergence of the emergence of the kingdom of Judah? And how did this temple... Anyway, <laughs> I'll just stop there. It's basically saying that, well, Jerusalem didn't build it. No one related to Jerusalem built it in terms of the kingdom of Judah. It must have been this local population of people, this local group that came out of nowhere, that no historical document mentions, that just decided one day as they grew up, that they were going to build this monumental structure, uh, this monumental temple, and use it as their place of worship. And so they invent a autonomous mozapolity just outside of Jerusalem, let's say around 900 BCE. When? What do we have? What do we have? Uh, we have a historical document that talks about how at that point we had kings that ruled over this territory uh, that would have ruled over Moza as well. They probably were the ones that built this. Obviously, we don't have the Bible saying that this specific spot was built by one of the kings. But definitely we have in Jerusalem evidence of monumental structures bigger than this temple, earlier than this temple as well on the Ophel. And they've been discovered in the past five or six years. And so he's saying that no one in Jerusalem could build this because we don't have big stuff in Jerusalem. That's just plain wrong. We do have big stuff in Jerusalem around the same time and earlier and so they could have built it. But he's saying it's another people, 
at least at the start. And then as the kingdom of Judah grew and through the 800s, then we have a, a more, or we have at least um, it coming under the control of Judah. Okay, finally, how does this piece end? It says this, And how did the temple operate successfully in the shadow of the Jerusalem temple throughout its entire lifespan, especially when the Bible makes no mention of any such temple, and moreover, says all shrines were destroyed? How is it even there through the whole period when all the shrines were destroyed? That's what the Bible says. The Bible must be wrong. That's what he's saying. But what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? There's one other fact that needs to be brought out. It's not in this piece, but it is in a quote uh, in one of these articles. Uh, this is the, the piece by Amanda Borshall Dan. Uh, she's writing, again, revealed in the first temple era, another massive temple was found in use, well, it was in use, sorry, near Jerusalem. And the uh, one of the co-directors of this dig says this, <clears throat> Among the other lingering questions the team hopes to unearth, this is when they excavate again next year, is when the use as a cultic site halted. So there's no discussion in this in the big piece in the Biblical Archaeology Review of when it ends. They just say sometime perhaps in the 6th century. And this article, this other article comes out and says, well, we don't know when it ended. Until when it was in use is a key issue, says Kisilevitz. The researchers are very interested to know whether it could have continued as a temple after the reforms instituted by King Josiah. Unfortunately, quote, we do not have an answer yet. So they don't know if it was destroyed by Josiah or not. Josiah is obviously... Uh, one of the or the last righteous king of the of of Judah, he ruled from six forty to six. Uh, thir- I'm going off memory here, six forty to somewhere around six fifteen. Let's put it that way. Uh, and uh, he did destroy a lot of of the pagan wor- sites that were used for worship by his fathers uh, and others in the Davidic dynasty. So they don't have a destruction date yet. Let's go now to what the Bible actually says. Does such a temple, or let's say a religious place of worship, because I'm not convinced 100% is a temple just yet because of the limited amount that's found. It might very well turn up to be, and that'll be fine. But we do know it was used for religious worship, and we do know that it was used in a way that is against what the Bible condones. This was not what God would want, according to the Bible. Uh, they're not meant to have idols such as this, and that yet that's what we find at the front of this building, right by this altar. But is finding such a thing, is that going against what the Bible says? Well, let's look at a few verses. I'm going to read through, uh, and I'm going to stay here in the Iron II period of the Bible. So when they're saying that this place was in, in use, what does the Bible say? And I'm going to quote from different versions of the English Bible as well, King James, the Tanakh, the JPS, uh, just because of clarity that's brought out throughout. And this is important because what I teach my class is in biblical archaeology is that you need to, to, to actually relate something to the biblical text. You need to know, uh, first of all, what the Bible says. Do we just have assumptions of what we think the Bible says, or do we know what the Bible says. This article in Haaretz is titled Ancient Place of Worship Found Near Jerusalem Challenges Assumptions About the First Temple. Well, I would say that's probably true. It does challenge some assumptions because most of the time what people assume is wrong. And it does challenge those wrong assumptions that people might think about the Bible. Don't foist what you think on the Bible. Read the Bible. Read what it says. Read what it says in Kings and Chronicles about how the different kings worshipped. And would we expect to find a cultic place like this in Moza or elsewhere? What does the Bible actually say? Because often when somebody comes out and says that a discovery like this goes against what the Bible says, what they're saying is, or if you read closer, it might just prove what the Bible says. If you go back to the source document itself and have a read, it's not that difficult. It's available for all of us to read. And we can go to it and uh, see what it says about religious worship in Judah through this period. 
So let's start with King Solomon. What did King Solomon do? We we it's obviously famous how many wives he had. It's obviously famous that <clears throat> uh, most of his life or much of his life he wasn't worshiping God in the right way. This is what First Kings eleven verse seven says. Then did Solomon build a high place, and whenever it says high place, it just means a place of worship, such as this altar. Uh, we do find them elsewhere. We find them in Arad, Beersheba, other places, other places of worship, other high places. And Solomon built one of these. He built one of these just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. This is 1 Kings 11, verse 7. The Tanakh says this, JPS, Tanakh. Then did Solomon build a high place for Chemosh, the detestation of Moab, in the mount that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestation of the children of Ammon. So most most other translations say that this was on the east of Jerusalem, so not this Mozart area. But Solomon himself built a place for false worship, for idol worship, for his wives, as it says there previously. So Solomon ruled from around uh, 971 through to 931. So this is before the construction of this Mozart temple. But nevertheless, we find from the beginning some influence of pagan worship that is being foisted upon the area by the kings of Judah. Let's go through to the next king, Rehoboam. Solomon's son, he ruled from 930 to 913. And so this is falling within the window that this temple at Mozart and this religious practice at Mozart could have been built. Again, the archaeologists there claimed that Jerusalem was nothing at this time, and so they couldn't have been the ones that built this. What does the Bible say? 1 Kings 14, verse 22 to 23, And Judah did that which was evil in the sight of the Eternal, and they moved him to jealousy. Why did they do that? Well, with, he was jealous with their sins which they committed, and above all that their fathers had done, for they also built them high places and pillars and a shirim on every high hill and under every leafy, uh, under every leafy tree. So during Rehoboam's reign, we did have other places of worship popping up everywhere. And that would fit the time period of the construction of this building, fit with inside the, win inside the window. And so they could have actually found something that conforms to the Bible completely, if Rehoboam was the, the one that built this. Then you've got uh, the next king rules for a couple of years, and then Asa comes along. Asa rules from 910 to 870 BCE. So again, this is within the window of the first use of this structure as a temple or religious building of some sort. Notice this. This is 2 Chronicles. We're going to read two accounts about Asa. Moreover, he made high places in the mountains of Judah and caused the inhabitants of Jerusalem to commit fornication and compelled Judah thereto. So he made religious places in the mountains, plural. And so in many locations throughout Jerusalem, or throughout Judah, he had places of worship, Asa, 9.10 to 8.70. First Kings 15, verse 9 to 14 says this, And in the 20 year, sorry, in the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, so Jeroboam was ruling in the north, Asa began to reign in Judah. And forty and one years he reigned in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Makkah, the daughter of Avishalom. And Asa did that which was right in the eyes of the Eternal, as did his father. So, he was kind of righteous. Asa was a little bit different than Rehoboam. Rehoboam set up all these places of worship. What did Asa do? He did that which was right in the eyes of the Eternal, as did his father. And he put away the Sodomites out of the land, and he removed all the idols that his father had made. So, he smashed idols. Asa did. And then it, uh, it says this, and, and also Makkah, his mother, he removed from being queen because she had made an abominable image for an Asherah, and Asa cut down her image, and he burnt it in the brook of Kidron. But notice this part. This is verse 14 now. It says, But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart, the heart of Asa was with the Lord all the days of his life. So this is really interesting because... Right during this period uh, that Asa ruled, 
we have this structure in Mozart being used, and we have this, uh, as I said, the, the very earliest part of this structure or the, temp the courtyard use as a religious structure, we find these idols, broken idols, smashed under the floor. A couple of them look like human humanoids, a couple of them zoomorphic, and they're smashed under the floor. And yet the building's not destroyed. What's going on here? What did they say? They said in their article here, um, if I can just pick up the quote, uh, they said that these assemblage of cold artifacts and pottery sherds were found scattered along a narrow strip of the courtyard between the floor and the disposal pit. That's where they were found. And they say, continue to say this. We've got four phases here. The earliest of them, including these, these idols. So the earliest meaning during the time of Rehoboam, perhaps, or even Acer itself. These were eventually covered with fills and, fills and sealed under a plaster floor, marking the second floor. So you've got it being used, and then the building is still being used, but something changes. Idols are smashed, deposited underneath a floor, and a new floor is constructed. Now, their theory about this is, is says this. Uh, uh, these were eventually covered with fills and sealed under a plaster floor, marking the second floor of the temple courtyard. This disposition does not signify a break in religious traditions, but rather religious ritual during which the cultic paraphernalia were decommissioned to make room for new items. Now, this is a guess. They don't know about this. They're saying that, well, this wasn't the result of a, let's say, a re religious revival of some sort where they're going to take those idols and smash them and bury them under the floor. They're saying that, well, this is just normal practice, you know. They're just going to put the old ones out, cover them over, and put new ones in. Well, we don't know about that. They didn't find new ones. They only found these ones under the floor. And it's the earliest floor that they found them on, or the, between the earliest floor and the second floor. So early on, perhaps it was during this time of Asa, when the Bible says that he removed all the idols that his father had made, but the high places were not taken away, didn't destroy the building, crushed the idols, broke the idols. These idols, again, were broken on purpose. I mean, it seems to me if you if you wanted to read your Bible and and kind of match up what the history of the time, date, timing, the timing, what the Bible says, and also the timing of these excavations, that would be a pretty close match. You find broken idols that were deliberately smashed, but the building keeps being used. Sounds like these scriptures right here from, and the, and the, and the timing of your discovery matches the time of Acer as well. Perhaps you have a, a match here to what the Bible says. Anyway, this is just a really interesting side point there that they could have actually found uh, an example of, of Asa's uh, religious revival. But as the Bible says, he didn't destroy the high place or these places. He just destroyed the idols. But that didn't last long. This is what, again, this is what Jehoshaphat says about Jehoshaphat, his son. He was also partly uh, righteous as well. He ruled from 870 to 848. So he did similar things from to his father, First uh, Kings twenty two verse forty three, and he walked in all the way of Asa his father. He turned not aside from it, doing that which was right in the eyes of the the eternal. Howbeit the high places were not taken away, the people still sacrificed and offered in the high places, and so he was good, but he let the people do what they wanted. If they wanted to offer at these places, he let them offer at these places. If he, they wanted to go to Mozart, do whatever they wanted to do, have their parallel religious service, they could do it. Then the next king, Jehoram, 848 to 840, it says this, Jehoram even built local shrines in the hills of Judah and let the people sin against the eternal by worshipping foreign gods. They've got the next king. The hills of Judah, right around Jerusalem, Jehoram, allowed them to build things, allowed them to have uh, pagan religious cultic practice. And this goes on and on and on and on and on until you've got King Hezekiah comes along and he puts a stop to it temporarily, really temporarily, it seems. Because by the time we get to King Josiah, which is a good hundred years, 
almost 100 years after uh, King Hezekiah, what does he have to do? He's the one that finally rids pagan worship from the land. He even goes up into Israel, even though the Israelites are long gone by that point. And he destroys pagan worship from up there as well. And interestingly enough, they don't know what happened at the site uh, in Josiah's time. They haven't found out yet. And maybe they'll find out next year on what happened during Josiah's time at this site at Mozart. But notice what the Bible says about what Josiah did. 2 Kings 23 and verse 13, And the high places that were before Jerusalem, which were on the right hand of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon the king of Israel had builded for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Zidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of the Moabites, and for Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, did the king defile. And so here you've got a place of worship described in the Bible, built by King Solomon, very close to Jerusalem, that is never fully destroyed till 300 years later by King Josiah. And he finally wipes it out, gets rid of it. And so for those that would come along and say that, you know, it goes against the Bible to find a such a place like this in Mozart, where it, it seems to have um, four phases of religious cultic practice, false worship, idol worship, from the time period, let's say, just after King Solomon, from Rehoboam all the way through to King Josiah, well, that matches. That matches beautifully what the Bible says. It's not contrary to what the Bible says. It's not going against uh, biblical historicity, what they've found at Mozart. It's actually confirming it. What you need to do is go back and read the Bible, look at it, look at what the text says, and then look at what their facts are, what they discovered, the dating of what they discovered, and then you can make your mind up of whether or not it fits um, the biblical narrative, or it doesn't, one of the two, one way or the other, or that it just the Bible doesn't cover it. That could be an option as well. It's really unfortunate uh, that people can be so hastily against the biblical narrative. For what reason? Why, why, why come out and, and uh, have the main thrust of your arguments and, and even and, and cover it in your first paragraph of, of your major piece in Biblical Archaeology Review that everyone is going to take and then write stories about in the media? Why make it about how what you've found goes against what the Bible uh, describes? Why not just tell us what you found? That's great enough. Tell us what you found and then tell us about some of your theories for sure. You've got the right to do that if you excavate it. But don't make it out to be going against the Bible when a proper reading of the Bible shows that what you found actually falls right in line. And it is really hard. It's really hard if you're just a layperson in terms of not being schooled in archaeology and trusting the experts and and to know what's true and what's not. And so you have to be really um, discerning if you're looking through this yourself. Of course, we are we have a bias. <laughs> we believe the Bible is accurate as a source of history. Um, but I'm just looking at the facts that as they are reported, and I'm putting along with the Bible, and I don't see a problem here. I don't see a problem in, in comparing the two, matching the two together at all. And so one good thing about all these articles that come out that try to throw out the Bible as being a source of history, it allows us to go through them and show that what they've discovered is actually falling in line, what the Bible says. It's confirming biblical history. But again, it is hard. I was just um, sitting in class earlier this week. I'm taking a, a Hebrew upan uh, or just a class to... to learn Hebrew a little bit better. And I was sitting next to a man and trying to explain what I do. And, and just, he brought up this discovery. He'd read about it. And he said, what do you think about that? And at this point in the conversation, we had started talking in Hebrew and my Hebrew is so limited that I could not get all my words out that I wanted to get out. And so for the next couple of minutes, we, we were meant to be doing like a Hebrew dialogue together to learn. I just started talking in English and he started talking in English and I told him about, well, this the main excavators here, they come from the Tel Aviv school. And a lot of the time, the Tel Aviv school is, has an anti-Bible bias. 
And more often uh, than Tel Aviv, the Hebrew University has a more pro-Bible bias, or at least it used to. And then he's like, well, this is just very confusing, because how am I meant to know? How am I meant to know what the truth is? And I, I felt sorry for this man. I, I didn't know what to tell him. Apart from, well, look at the facts and then know your Bible. The facts shouldn't change. Whether somebody's a biblical minimalist or maximalist, hopefully they're not being dishonest with the facts. And generally they're not. It's how they then interpret those facts that we have a problem with. And that there needs to be somebody pushing back on the false narrative that is consistently given that the Bible is inaccurate, especially during the time periods of David, Solomon, and shortly thereafter. That biblical history is so true. There's promises given during those times of David and Solomon that are the hope in the Bible. And so as people, as these archaeologists go after that time period, they're trying to make it into a fable when there's no reason, archaeologically speaking, to dismiss the period of David and Solomon as, as being a fable. What we discover in Jerusalem and elsewhere fits what the Bible says during that time period. We are going to do our best uh, to make uh, to refute and rebut a lot of these pieces as they come out. Again, as I said, this piece will be written up, or at least the, the substance of what we've talked about today will be written up most probably in the next Watch Jerusalem magazine. If not, you can find it online perhaps in the next week or so if it's not going in the magazine. And then you can go through it in greater detail as well and and prove it for yourself. You don't need me to tell you what the Bible says. The Bible's there. You can read it yourself and you can see whether the facts of this discovery match up or not. That's all we have time for today. Thank you very much for bearing with me all the way to the end of this program. If you haven't got a subscription to the Watch Jerusalem magazine, this comes out bi-monthly, and it can can be sent to you anywhere in the world for free. If you haven't signed up for that, I do encourage you to do so. You can do that by going to our website, watchjerusalem.co.il, and hitting the magazine tab and uh, requesting that. Or you can just simply write an email to letters at watchjerusalem.co.il and put your address in there and and I'll make sure that you get a copy, the next copy, which will be coming out. We'll probably hitting mailboxes in about another month and a half. Thank you very much for listening again and I'll talk to you next week.